Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe Weekly Podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated comics podcast that comes out on a Thursday. Today we'll be looking at G.I. Joe issue 280 with a very special guest. But before we get into that, let me introduce the Gandalf to my Bilbo Baggins. It's my co-host, Tim. How are you, Tim? Hi, Mark. Wow, does that mean that I'm taller than you? <laughs> you you are when you sit up high in your chair with your uh, camera tilted down to the, your nose and I'm looking smaller. Yes. Um, uh, the, the... If you measure us with a ruler, perhaps not. I think it's Gandalf's first line in the movie version of Fellowship of the Ring that I use often as a as an example for my students about making sure that your characters are introduced clearly. Because mm-hmm. I love the I love that Gandalf says Bilbo Baggins. He says his name, uh-huh. but sort of everyone who uses a name, right? Everyone who uses a name in that entire trilogy of movies like mumbles the name like Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> so I actually I actually don't know anyone's name in those movies from the movies themselves <laughs> well it would be as as a teacher it would be unfortunate if your catchphrase was a different element which is none shall pass uh... let's talk about let's talk about G.I. Joe Okay, so joining us today is comic artist, uh, Friday the 13th fan, and wearer of unorthodox pajamas. It's Ron Joseph. Ron lives, <laughs> Ron lives in Virginia, but is currently in California. He's working on science fiction comic project Endangered with writer John McCarthy. Previous work includes Seven Cent Solution, Micronauts, Revolutionaries, Mask, Transformers, and most recently, Rom Dyer Wraiths. But most significantly for us, he worked on the Cobra's Venom arc in G.I. Joe's issues 256 to 260 in 2018, and the most recently published issue just out um, two or three days from recording time. Uh, it's issue 280, and that's the issue we'd be talking today. Greetings, Ron. Welcome onto the show. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm... I have to ask you one question. Unorthodox pajamas. <laughs> I'm actually wearing them right now. <laughs> where did you where did you get that little nugget? I didn't tell you about the uh, the secret hidden <laughs> web camera feature of this recording device. Oh, no, it's uh, Facebook. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> which ones? Uh, I'm just curious. Which ones did you see? Right now, I'm wearing my Spider-Man top and my red and black flannel bottoms. I believe it was a unicorn pajama <laughs> set. With, uh, I forgot about that headpiece. My son, my son likes to get me these onesies. I don't know what they call them. <laughs> He, he got me a Ted. I uh, remember the movie Ted about the Mark Wahlberg and the teddy bear. Seth mm-hmm. Mc, uh, what is his name? Seth MacFarlane? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right, yeah. Yeah, he got me a pair of Ted pajamas, and then he thought a unicorn would be funny. And I have to humor him, so I put them on it and take pictures. Excellent. And then put it out <laughs> so that the likes of, uh, the likes of me can, uh, <laughs> can put it in your plotted <laughs> biography. Um, <laughs> excellent. So, uh, thank you very much for for joining us and to give thank some listeners me. some co- some context of what what's going on. I'm uh, down in the south of UK. It's uh, half past three. Tim is over on the east coast, and it's uh, what is it? It's half 10. past ten. Your yeah. time, Tim. Yeah. And uh, Ron is all the way over on the west coast of USA with the surfing girls. Um, and it's <laughs> half past seven in the morning, so that is dedication. Um, so, so thank you very much for for joining us at this uh, this early hour. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And to to illustrate uh, the, the time difference. Beverage for the show. The beverage for the show. Now I am gonna go and drink my beverage for the show. In terms of our beverages for the show. Um, I'm uh, I'm sort of energizing my afternoon with uh, some Pepsi Max. Mm. Uh, it's uh, it's a bank holiday weekend. I feel I can uh, indulge myself with uh, something a little bit uh, harder than my regular uh, water <laughs> or a cup of tea. Um, and uh, are you on a cup of uh, Ron hot cup of Ron Joe? Sif. I am. <laughs> Does that work? Drinking, drinking Joe while talking Joe. I think I made that bad, bad joke in the email. Drinking Joe, talking Joe. Oh, that would be a good, uh, that'd be a good title for a segment. Nice. There you go. Uh, very good. Um, so, so yeah. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Ron. Was uh, was my um, introductory biography fair? Did uh, was it was there anything that uh, that you wanted to to expand upon from from that that or, or maybe was missing? Uh, no, I think you. I think you did a good job. I, if you had you not mentioned it, I probably would have mentioned the unorthodox pajamas, <laughs> just to paint you a visual picture of, of what it of what I look like right now. Excellent. And uh, also, the I'm, other thing, I'm wearing my reading glasses to to not look at anything. I keep forgetting we're just on a call. I don't need to see my <laughs> monitor. Excellent. Um, and I, yeah, the other thing that was as I was doing my research that seemed to crop up, crop up a lot was this uh, love of uh, Jason from Friday ah, the Thirteenth yes. that seems to have made a big uh, impact and, and uh, impression on uh, a young Ron Joseph. Yes, I am a huge Jason Voorhees fan. So I wish, the makers, the... I wish the makers of the movies were as big a fan as I was because they don't seem <laughs> to do him justice lately. Ron, is it is it just Friday the Thirteenth, or is it all of the New Line Cinema '80s slasher films? Well, I grew up watching. You know, I'm I'm, I'm an old man. I'm I'm going to be fifty this year. Um, it's mostly it's it's pretty much all of them. I'll, I'll watch any horror, but Jason is Jason is like my spirit animal. <laughs> is that is that like your dream project to to work on something um, in that franchise professionally? Yes. Uh, actually, uh, I know you guys have had Chad Bowers on your show recently. 
Well, sure, maybe yeah. not so recently, but he's been on. Not he recently, and I but... Been, right, he and I have been kicking around an idea for doing Jason versus Pumpkinhead. Um, because I just think the two franchises, it would write itself. Um, mm-hmm. I did some rough sketches and put them online, and they got some pretty good feedback. And uh, he's he's totally into it. So that's something we'd like to have down the line. It's rough, though, with licensing. Yeah, yeah. At, at the same time, licensing in this decade makes everything possible. If you had told mm-hmm. me, if you told me uh, 10 years ago that there would be a co-branded Back to the Future Transformers toy... Mm. <laughs> that that yeah. would just that would just be available at stores, not even mm-hmm. a you know San Diego uh, exclusive, um, and then a four issue miniseries. I would not have believed you. <laughs> that was uh, yeah, I <laughs> I'm right there with you. It's uh, it's incredible that some of the things that are coming out now and things that are happening. If you ever thought uh, that Rom would be crossing over with the Micronauts and the Transformers and GI Joe and Mask, uh, you know, it's incredible. I really enjoyed that universe uh mm-hmm. the, the 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 transformers continuity at idw which then expanded to include the rest of the hasbro properties and through some luck and also a lot of really good writing and some careful planning the timeline basically all works out that the transformers comics that have been running since i think it's 2006 and the gi joe comics that have been running since uh, i want to say 2010 uh actually could fit together in a continuity and then you mm-hmm. liberally sprinkle in the rest of the Hasbro properties and and while the revolutionaries series that you drew about a third of uh, mm-hmm. was being published I feel like there was just so much content right there were there were three monthly Transformers books there was right. this every like one person from every property team up book that was really a bridge from the previous crossover to the next crossover which felt very sort of marvel style in terms mm-hmm. of hopping from one event to another and um not all these characters mean much to me right i like mask and you know i'll read some mask co- right. comics but i don't know how excited i'm going to get if a character is changed or if a character you know like dies or ascends to godhood um, but it like it makes sense. Like no, I think there should be a Hasbro verse, and all the writing and all the art in this series was great. Um, which actually leads me uh, to um, well, that leads me to my second question. Um, if Mark didn't have an opening uh, career question, I wanted to kick things off. Uh, Mark, should I should I ask the first interview question? Yeah, kill him. <laughs> um, Ron, tell us about your earliest published comics works oh my god um it was a very all right um it was probably 1991 or two it was a very 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 small independent publisher on long island um in new york in new york um and they were i mean we were getting paid like three dollars a page eight dollars a page you know doing in-house art and it was mostly parodies and and a lot of a lot of porn um a lot in biographical comics, uh, ba- yeah. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to talk too much about that because I don't want people to go look for those and possibly find them. My wife found one in a store <laughs> once, or ordered it on eBay or Amazon or something, and actually presented it to me as a gift one day. And I, I, I cringed, but I was also very touched that she went to the length that she did to find it. <laughs> I I have a close friend who draws for all of the major publishers. Who mm-hmm. his first. Uh, paid published comics was an adult an adult comic mm-hmm. uh, and it 
um, it, it sort of got published, sort of didn't get published, and he's <laughs> right. fine with no one knowing about it. Yeah, that's <laughs> me. <laughs> so uh, what was the earliest work that you got that you were uh, uh, bragging about? That would be uh, the seven percent solution. I have to. There's a there's a large gap in my art career, if you want to call it that. So I was trying my hardest Marvel and DC at the time. Marvel and DC were the you know the almost only game in town when I was in high school at least. And then you know Valiant and Defiant and Image started up, and uh, nobody seemed to take any interest in me. So I started to lose a, a little bit of my motivation and my desire. So I went and I got real jobs, you know, and I'm using air quotes when I say real jobs. <laughs> um, so I, I, I drove, I drove a tractor trailer for like nine years. I pretended mm. that I was just piloting Optimus Prime to keep myself sane. And uh, then I met my, my wife and she was like, you have to draw, you have to do this, take mm. some time off and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's what uh, led me to that. I submitted work uh, and I put it up on the internet and, the internet is such an amazing tool. It's just, mm. as we all know. And that's how uh, oh, David Hedgecock from IDW contacted me and asked me to send him work directly from then on. And uh, the 7% solution came along a few months after that. Okay, so that was like 20, 2015. So, yeah. so I guess you've, you've experienced a, uh, a good chunk of, of your life um, out of necessarily, you know, published comics because i mean a mm -hmm. lot of a lot of people's career pathway is is kind of is you know they love comics as as children maybe go to art school out of art school sort of try and then break into the industry and mm -hmm. you know different experiences of how easy or not that that is but then sort of find some published work and then sort of just uh sort of you know do what you can to to sort of stay in the industry and stay drawing in you know comics mm -hmm. video game design storyboards what you know commercial art whatever whatever opportunities pre presents its, itself so um you know it, i guess for a long period of that time was were you kind of just did it did the art always remain quite a big part of your life were you sort of just drawing for for fun and and but but you know just not you know just not it being your actual i guess you know paid career at that point right um I did for the for a little while. Um, once I decided I'm just going to go job hunt, I, I, I drew here and there, but it, it almost became like living with an ex-girlfriend that the relationship ended badly. It was almost mm. painful to be able to draw and not do it for a job. So I, I put it away for a while, and I didn't do anything for a couple of years, mm. um, which, you know, I kick myself for that every now and again, but the path right. I led led me here, so, you know. Yeah. Ron, Excellent. Yeah. Were were you a Star Trek fan such that working on a Nicholas Mayer comic was a big deal for you or was this did this mean something else in terms of breaking in? <clears throat> um Trek, Star Trek. I I love the movies. I never watched the show uh other than one episode here or there or clips from episodes. Um So it didn't have it didn't have that that punch for me. Uh, and I actually had to look up when I when I looked up Nicholas Meyer or Mayer, however he pronounces it. No, uh, sorry, I got it wrong. You got it right, Nicholas oh, Meyer. Okay, yeah. Uh, then I realized, oh, the, the Star Trek connection. And I was like, oh, that's really really cool. And then I felt like. <laughs> and and as much as you, you probably would have liked to draw the covers your, yourself, those uh, quite oh, quite a coup to have Kelly Jones doing those those covers. That was what, that was what a legend. That was brilliant. Yes, I grew because well, I grew up reading his Micronauts. Um, and loved oh, it. Right. 
Oh yeah, the new voyages. Um, here's a here's a good connection because mm-hmm. uh, I I see the Bernie Wrightson in your artwork, oh. and so much Thank of you. Kelly wow. so much of Kelly Jones's work is is aiming mm-hmm. at Bernie Wrightson. In fact, uh, Kelly Jones finished the Frankenstein Alive miniseries that Wrightson yep. uh, didn't finish uh, when he passed. Yes. Uh, Kelly Jones refers to Bernie Wrightson as his captain, and uh, I tell you what, if there was a, a, a torch to be passed or a mantle, he's like a legacy, he, he, Kelly Jones has got it. You know, he's like, if there was no Wrightson, it would be him. But if there was no Wrightson, I guess he wouldn't draw like that, would he? <laughs> so were you, as a general question, um, what what was your awareness of G.I. Joe before, just as you were about to draw an issue for the first time? Oh, I mean, uh, you know, growing up in the 80s, it was on, you know, I watched the show. Um, I love the G.I. Joe movie. Um, I had some, I had some active figures. I I went more down the Transformers uh, path when it came to the collecting the figures and whatnot. But um, I was pretty well versed in all the Joe stuff. So there was a, there was a nice little bit of history there, too. And I think, oh, maybe I should say what I was going to say for the toy talk. Did you, did you read the Marvel comic in the 80s and 90s? Mm-hmm. Um, I even have, uh, there was a, there was a flashback scene in the Cobra's Venom arc that I did that I actually had the original issue where Snake Eyes was watching Quinn as he was uh-huh. about to throw uh, Dr. Venom out of the plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I had that original issue, and now I'm drawing an issue with a flashback referencing that. <laughs> and I'm like, this is trippy. <laughs> uh, yeah. How did you... Uh, did you buy comics every week, every month? Was it regular, or oh, was yes. it mm-hmm. okay? I had a pull list. I had all of it. Yes. What was your? Where do you get your comics? Uh, there was a place. Uh, the, the first place I was I found was uh, I was in my early teens. It was called the Incredible Pulp. Um, that was on Long Island in New York, also. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you what. On the side of the building, if you drove down the block towards the store, there was a, a big blank brick wall, and they had this tremendous tremendous sign of the Hulk and the pulp like facing each other and the pulp looked like this I've tried to find if anybody had pictures of it uh, this big pink he looked like a walking brain a pulpy brain um, so that was my first uh, my first comic shop my old friend Patrick introduced me to it and uh, and then I found a place called Cosmic Comics um, not too far away from there and that was my spot for 10 or 15 years do you know roughly what issue to what issue you read the Marvel G.I. Joe or what years? Um, no, that was a long time ago, but I know that it probably, it started somewhere. Wow. You know, no, I don't. I know I have Silent Interlude, which is the one that probably everybody has, but I had that um, back in the day. I didn't collect it regularly. It was sporadic. If the covers looked really cool or the characters... I was like, ooh, let me grab this one. Let me grab that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's the, there was one cover John Byrne did, and I want to say it's Breaker, but it might not be. And I was just fascinated with the cover where he's falling backwards out of a helicopter. Clutch goes yeah. home the hard way. Clutch, clutch, that's... clutch. That's the one. Issue <laughs> I, used to recreate that, I used to recreate that cover with any other character just because I loved the, 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 the concept of it. I'm like, that looks so cool and, and, and scary. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and have, have did you, sort of since uh, since then have you continued to to be a sort of fan and collector of uh, comics yourself? Uh, I stopped. I stopped collecting comics um, 
for the most part, because, you know, rent and mortgages and car insurance and gas and dating, you know, <laughs> took, took over. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've got, uh, I've got like 11 or 13 long boxes of, of all my books up there. So I was collecting for a while, and then I just had mm-hmm. to, you know, parse out my spending here and there. Okay. And, and who were, who were your art heroes? So, so I think, um, I think the, the obvious one that, that, uh, I can spot is, is an Alan Davis yes, kind I of love influence Alan Davis. On, on your work. Yeah. Alan Davis, uh, Alan Davis and John Byrne. John Byrne was my biggest back in the day. He was the first one that I really studied his work and tried to emulate. And then I found Alan Davis. And then what's funny is I learned that they were both heavily influenced by Neil Adams. And uh-huh. once I learned that and I looked at their work, they don't, I don't think you'd ever mistake John Byrne for Alan Davis or vice versa, mm-hmm. but there are some similarities that I started to pick up. And then I saw Neil Adams. I'm like, Oh, there we go. There's the missing piece of the puzzle. Right. Right. Sort of like branching, almost branching off. Yeah. Um, yeah. John, Brian, Brian Hitch's very early work was, you can, mm-hmm. you could see the, the influence yes. on, on Alan Davis on, on his, his style before it kind of branched off into, into his, right. his own, identifiable, un- identifiable uh, style as Absolutely, yeah. As well. I think I remember the first time I uh, discovered Brian Hitch's work, he was taking over Clandestine. That's um, right, yeah. And uh, and I saw his work, I'm like, oh, all right, Alan Davis was going off the book, and I was very depressed about that. But then I saw his, I'm like, oh, I can live with this. I can I can, <laughs> I can get into this. Yeah. There was yes. a, I went to a portfolio review a few years ago, and I, the guy was looking at my work. He goes, "Oh, somebody likes Brian Hitch." I said, "Actually, Brian Hitch and I both like Alan Davis." And he he <laughs> chuckled a little, but he looked at me and it almost uh, he didn't like the correction. Not that I not that I was insulted at all that he saw Brian Hitch in my work. It was just one of those. What, who do you think you are? <laughs> right, Moments. right, right. <laughs> Very good. But I actually. Course, I, you know, oh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I also <laughs> noticed in. Um, in issue 259 um, mm-hmm. in Cobra's Venom, there was this panel of yeah, uh, an Iron go. Grenadier with Destro mm-hmm. in the background. And I picked it out and I thought that looks very Mignola-esque. And I, I don't know if uh, mm-hmm. if you're a fan of his work as well. I love I love Mike Mignola's work. I think he's brilliant. I don't draw anything like him. I have to go back and look at that panel now. I thought you were going to pick out a different panel that I totally swiped from Alan Davis from Clandestine. <laughs> 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 I didn't know if it was obvious to every. It was a picture of Quinn's face uh, when okay. uh, Doctor Venom shoots him in the back, and he's he's. And I think I took it from Wallop, uh, you know, Uncle Wally from Clandestine. I don't know if you read it. Okay, no, no, I've not. Uh, oh, I, I've read some of it, but but not in many many years. <laughs> Um, now I have to go back and look at the Iron Grenadier picture and see if I subconsciously, or maybe I did swipe, swipe it right from Mike McNola's work. Who knows? <laughs> Ron, yes. Ron, what's the, how did you get this five issue arc on GI Joe? And what did you think when you got it? Oh my God. Um, I'm trying, I don't remember what I did in between that. If that came right after 7% solution or not, Seven twenty eight. no, that would have been a big gap. Um, it was just a random email. Uh, I think it was David Hedgecock that sent it to me. He said, "Hey, what are you what are you doing these days?" And he said, "More importantly, what are you doing for the next five months?" Because <laughs> uh, we have a GI Joe story and blah blah blah. Yeah. And I lit up. I'm like, "GI Joe, holy shit!" And here we go with the cursing. I was like, "Yes, go. Uh, I'll take it." I was blown away, and that was I couldn't email and text and call people enough. Uh, my family and friends like, "I'm drawing GI Joe." <laughs> I was gonna say it was it's a it was a really fun arc in terms of the the story and, and you know what, mm-hmm. what you could make of it there was you know the giant 
Dr. Venom robots, lots of intersecting, um, you know, varied storylines, mm-hmm. um, lots of uh, lots of action, you know, lots of different characters. So there's, you know, it's it's not definitely not a uh, an issue of people just standing around talking. For example. Right. Oh my god, so, I can't I can't stand that talking head dialogue mm-hmm. comics where they're just every you know I don't want to draw the same people in the, the same room for for five issues. That robot by any by uh by the way, um after David asked me if I wanted to do the, the arc, he sent me a sketch that Larry Hammer had actually drawn. Mm-hmm. He said, So this is the robot and Larry has drawn it goes if you want to do sort of like a tryout for the first cover of the issue. Um and that, that cover that they published was the, the image I sent them. That was based off Larry's okay. design. Um yeah, I've, yeah. I, um, I saw, I think Larry might have posted it on Facebook or something like Oh, his like own that. sketch? Was it? Uh, yes, yeah. Oh. So I have, I have seen that, that, that picture and, and, okay. and, and yeah, how, how it's um, morphed in, into, into your, your version of it. Did, um, right. did you get um, sketches from um, Larry for the, for the rest of the covers as, as well, or, or were those all, uh, all a f- uh, blank sheet of paper? Oh, no, no, those were all me. Um... Tom Waltz would maybe uh, the, by the the very last cover. I think I didn't really know what was going to happen in the issue. That's that's another thing mm-hmm. when you're working on Joe, you don't quite know. I like to draw something on the cover that's indicative of what's happening inside instead of mm-hmm. just doing some pinups and stuff like that. Um, he's like, I don't know. He's like, I don't know yet. I haven't gotten everything. He goes, Why don't you just draw uh, draw this or draw that or try this out? And I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was Cover Girl in the uh, the desert the. the striker or something um, oh, the their yeah their jeep that looks a bit like yeah. striker <laughs> I, I, I I forget the names of the vehicles all the time so forgive me if I just blank out just interject with the name it's called a, a stinger you idiot you know or whatever yeah. <laughs> but no um, the sketch of the robot was I think the only piece of art that I got that that was the big venom robot yeah Ron some of the venoms uh, some of the cobra's venom you penciled mm-hmm. you penciled and inked some right. of it you penciled and Brian Shearer inked. Right. How did that work out? That, uh, um, how did that, how did that come about? Or yeah, how did I, yeah. oh, the, uh, I don't know if you read the, the pit, uh, letters page. I think it was in 257. Um, shall, oh. I just re- shall I just read that out? As I think yeah, maybe, go for maybe it. Background sure, and, then, and then maybe you can, you can expand and, and sort of a little bit more, oh, okay. uh, Ron. So, uh, so we go. During the process of illustrating G.I. Joe ARAR 256, our new friend Ron was struck by an unexpected heart malady, so much so it landed him in hospital for emergency open heart surgery. But did that stop Warrior Ron? Heck no. Just check out the pictures of Ron drawing pages in the hospital right until they wheeled him into the operating room. He claims the surgeon prescribed that box of pizza. I have my doubts. <laughs> That's also Ron in his post-op scars and bandages. Clear evidence of his ordeal. Ready to get back into the G.I. Joe trenches. And faster than you can scream, medic, he did, folks. Completing the marvel- marvellous wor- work you witness in this fine comic book. And we're not just talking pencils here. We're talking inks, too. Oh, and not only did he get it done, he hit the blasted deadline. Talk about soldiering on in the face of adversary. Ron, you the man. <laughs> uh, thank you for the refresh, Mark. I, uh, I and in skimming these issues, I I did not skim the letters pages, in 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 preparation for today's interview. But I, of course, I read issue two hundred and eighty very carefully. Yeah. So, so Ron, how did how far did you 
um, you know, was this completely out of the 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 blue? This this medical situation, and how far have you got with the with the process before it uh, all hit? Um, okay, so uh, yes, it came out of the blue. There were very small warning signs a few days prior. I've been having these weird dizzy spells and or blackout spells where I had to, I would actually collapse or get dizzy and sit, and then my it was, it was just my brain shut off. And then turn back on, and I had to reacclimate myself. Like, where am I? What day is this? What was I just doing for a few seconds? Uh, it turns out my heart was actually stopping. Um, I had a bad heart valve. Mm. Um, nice. Now, <laughs> just real quick, when I was 17, I had Hodgkin's disease, and I had a tumor in the dead center of my chest, and I had mm. chemo and radiation and all that. It was the radiation treatments that damaged my heart valve. I was very thankful that it was that and not like bacon, uh, you know, that I didn't do that to myself, um, <laughs> you know, so um, I was 16, 16 pages in to the very first issue of the five issue story arc. And uh, it was uh, my birthday was in July and I went into the hospital the day after my birthday. And I remember that we had gone to the movies and the next day my wife and I and our son were going to go get some Outback and I, I pissed and moaned about getting my Outback for a good year after that. Um, <laughs> I never got my Outback. <laughs> you know, uh, I took the dog for a walk and halfway down the block uh, was the worst fainting spell I had. Everything went black. I landed in my neighbor's driveway and sat back up like, what the hell am I sitting in the driveway for? And I had her, you know, again, re reacclimate myself. Uh, oddly enough, I finished walking the dog because she hadn't gone to the bathroom yet. <laughs> so I'm leaning on people's fences and I'm waiting for this dog to Good poop. Grief. I went back in the house and I went upstairs. My wife was still sleeping. It was early in the morning. And I said, babe, we have to go to the ICU or the uh, the emergency room, rather. Mm. I gathered up some art stuff and we drove down there. And I didn't know that I was going to be in the ICU. I didn't know what was happening. Um, and they took me right from there and, and uh, checked me in. They were like, you have to do this, and we need this, and he's in third-degree heart block, they were calling it. Um, I told Tom, I, I had emailed Tom from uh, the initial x-ray they did him. I said, I'm going to be laid up for a few hours, so I might just not have a page for you today. And mm -hmm. then I had to email him again later, like, yeah, I'm going to be out of commission for a while. And I would take, I would draw in the hospital room, take pictures of the sketches of the layouts of the page, which was our standard thing. I'd, I would do rough layouts in pencil, mm -hmm. scan them, email him. And then he'd approve those, and then I'd ink them. Um, so I would take pictures from the hospital room of the of the pages, and he asked me if I wanted somebody to ink them, and I thought I'd really rather just can I just finish this issue? I was it was such a shitty experience, and I was like mm. I can't believe this is happening. Just I just got this five issue arc now, so um, I finished inking issue one, and then they brought in Brian to do a few because uh, just to help me out because I was there was recovery and and all that. Oh, and a little cherry on the Sunday is while I was in the hospital for the heart uh, problem, they did a CAT scan, and they came in my room. They're like, oh, did you know you have a tumor on your kidney? Oof. And I looked at my wife, and she looked at me, and she's, she's a nurse. She goes, she's got horror stories, so she, she and I don't really get rattled. I looked at her, and I shrugged, and I, I looked at the, the doctor. I said, well, you know, why don't you just set me on fire at this point? I mean, <laughs> for crying out loud. Oh, and you have cancer. So October, I had to go in and have another surgery. After I'd, after I'd recovered from this enough, I went in and got the tumor taken out. So this was all during this story arc. So Brian was brought in to help me out. Mm. Yeah. Good grief. That was as, quite a run. <laughs> Ron, as, mm -hmm. a, as a reader of comics and yes. as a G.I. Joe fan... Mm -hmm. I am used to 
someone, oftentimes the penciler, uh, uh-huh. having a deadline challenge. And sometimes it's not the penciler's fault, right? Sometimes the editor and the writer get them the script late. Right. Uh, or sometimes, you know, real world events, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's so many examples in comics of a run being interrupted and uh, other hands, inconsistent hands, lesser hands coming in. Mm-hmm. And finishing the story so that it still ships on time, or maybe not even on time. And as a reader, uh, it's it's no fun. Right. This arc this arc does not suffer for your health challenges. Uh, and and uh, Brian Shearer has penciled and inked um, GI Joe in addition to inking a lot of GI Joe. Right. Uh, so as a as a comics reader. As as a person interviewing you, I'm glad you're still here and that your your ticker is ticking. As thank a you, comics, I am too. <laughs> as a comics person, uh, thank you so much for working so hard to keep the trains running on time and and running well. Thank you, Charlie Mike. <laughs> oh well, you had said uh, that ticking away. Uh, that's funny because the, I have a metal heart valve now, and it literally ticks. Oh and you God. can hear it. Uh, and I was actually going to take one of my earbuds off. <laughs> if you want, I'll put it up to it. It might pick it up. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> let me see if it'll work. Hold on a second. <laughs> Watch me short my pacemaker out. I have a pacemaker, <laughs> too. <laughs> uh, Ron is turning into Dr. Venom's robot. <laughs> piece by piece. I don't think it's picking it up. There was a... Yeah, so it, and it's fairly loud. There are nights where we're watching TV and my wife will look over me like, you're, you're ticking really loud tonight. I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. There's no volume now, babe. Just... No. <laughs> was there any discussion after these five issues of you drawing more G.I. Joe? Uh, yeah. Uh, in, a, in a very conversational, hey, and, you know, we can do this again. Let's do this again. Or let's, you know, there's always a... Um, there's never a period at the end of the sentence. There's always a comma. It's like, hey, thanks. This these issues came out great, or whatever Tom had told me, and you know, I'm sure we'll do it again down the line. Oh, then a few other things I think popped in there, and then this issue 280 had come uh, come up. I was like, yeah, but I have it. Now, um, I'm curious about the the Venom arc, about how the the process between you and Brian worked, and and it's a you know, it's it's a very good arc, and and the art is very solid, but. Um, Thank you. Without without wanting to to sort of pour in too much um, uh, sort of cold water on it, I did, and this is this is part compliment, part not possibly that I did mm-hmm. definitely prefer the the ish the art where you're inking your yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think you know uh, it it might be partly your your style in terms of how you do your pencils and 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 inks and, right. and how much is you know how much is finished in in the inks versus just going over. The, the lines but i noticed in there some of the artwork that you sent over us for for 280 in terms of mm-hmm. comparing the finished art versus the the pencils that there is definitely a, a re- very real difference between right. the penciled art and and the inked art it isn't just the lines are darker there is <laughs> there is decisions being made in terms of how to to complete the the piece i wonder um to what extent was uh was the, you know was the art, you know, un, you know, you know, in that unfinished state almost when when it was going over to to Brian for for him to have to, you know, right. be making those decisions to complete it. Well, when I'm when I'm inking myself, um, I'm I'm pretty loose uh, with the pencils because I know mm. what I'm going to be doing later. Um, so I'll give Tom uh, or and now Megan Brown was another uh, editor I had this this last go around. 
Um, I'll just give them a general idea of what I'm going to do, and they'll approve that, and then I'll go back, and then I get in there with all my OCD and, uh, you know, <laughs> details and little little nicks and jams and all the or the doodads I throw in there. But when I'm going to have another inker, I'll pretty much do full pencils, and they're pretty tight. Um, I don't even do the thing where they put the X's where it's supposed to be black. I color it in with the pencil just oh, because right. there's a thing in my head that I, I need it to be finished. <laughs> Yeah, what I wasn't too too sure of, um, you know, in, in knowing that story about, you know, behind the scenes, what was what was happening was to what degree when those pencils were going across to, to Brian, it was always known that that would be the arrangement versus him stepping in and um, helping out, not necessarily with with the, that view that someone else would be inking in, in mind. Or, or was it always the case when you were handing something across to to Brian? It was known in advance that. Um... Oh yeah, no, I always I always knew which uh, which ones he was going to ink, um, mm-hmm. and I don't I actually don't remember. Did he ink two or three of them? Uh, I um, think it was three. So in terms of the credits, at any rate, mm-hmm. um, he's got credits for part two, part uh, three is just you, mm-hmm. uh, part four. And part five, so yeah, it was what two, four, five, I think. You said. Well, yeah, that makes sense. That sounds about right. Yes, I remember inking the the uh, the issue with all of Doctor Venom's flashbacks and uh, the fin- mm. yeah, uh, yeah. So I knew he was going to be inking those. So I pretty much did full pencils, and I wanted to do the covers all myself. So that was a thing. I just wanted to get the covers done myself. Can yeah. you differentiate? Uh, what is it like to draw a Larry Hama script <laughs> versus, say, a John Barber script on Revolutionaries Ooh. or a uh, Nicholas Meyer script? Well, the, oh, wow. So the Nicholas Meyer and John Barber scripts were pretty, pretty well fleshed out. Um, there was a lot of detail in there and whatnot. But I communicated with John a lot while we were working on that, uh, on the issues. Uh, the Larry Hammer scripts are pretty much old uh, Marvel style um, plot pencil script. So I'll get and Larry every time Larry sends a script, it's always got a disclaimer at the top, like these are just suggestions. And if the artist can interpret something different and better, then have at it. Um, it's pretty much uh, a general general outline for the page. He's very good with giving the details about the military vehicles and the weaponry. And all all the military stuff um, is very well laid out, and he's good with sending pictures and photos and reference for all the vehicles that aren't GI Joe vehicles, because there's a lot of real world military stuff um, in the books. That motor scooter that the Baroness is riding in 280, uh, I think he'd sent like eight pic- eight pictures of that from different <laughs> angles. <laughs> so uh, so for Real American Hero, you're getting a plot, not a full script, mm-hmm. and. And and Hama is is dialoguing over your right. pencils or inks later. Yes. And you find out when it's uh, once it's all been finished what uh, what it is these <laughs> characters were actually saying. <laughs> right. And what's funny is that while I'm drawing it, I'll like I'll I'll dialogue it myself in my head while I'm doing it. Like, you know, I'll I'll, I'll add dialogue that I think might fit on that page. Like, I wonder what the blah blah blah. And then when I get it back, it's never what I was thinking. Not that it's bad. It's just boy, I was way off. <laughs> How? What are the circumstances specifically of drawing issue 
280, right? We're going to guess that you drew mm -hmm. the cover well in advance, but yes. how, how how long did you have to, to pencil the issue, to ink the issue? Uh, was this affected by uh, the pandemic or the all the shipping changes with comics in the last year? Um, the, the pandemic, actually, the pandemic didn't have any any impact um, on on my end of it anyway. I know Larry's in Manhattan, uh, and they got hit pretty hard, but I would imagine he just stayed in anyway. Um, <laughs> I do remember. Uh, when did when did you start? I think I had that issue done at the end of the year in. My God, my memory is straight shit right now. Give me one second. <laughs> I, I, I might be able to. I'm glad I might be able to help. I, I saw oh, okay. that from I saw from Twitter that you you said that you turned in your inks uh, in November, okay, so that was probably that the the end of the process. Um, yeah, and I'm uh, guessing yeah the the cover was probably a lot a lot longer than that. So you when you know you've got a Baroness here in just uh, I guess would you call it kind of a you know an iconic hero pose almost sort of you know against the background of a castle. I'm guessing you had at this point that point you had no idea what the uh what the interiors would actually be none absolutely nothing uh and i know that the baroness is uh, associated with destro so i was like well what if i put her atop at like destro's castle but it doesn't have to be uh you know reference heavy um like there's nothing specific on the cover that one would think well wh why isn't this in the issue um i can i, I, I can add a I can add a sentence here. Uh, there's an interview you did with uh, Bleeding Cool in 2015, yes. where you said, uh, I can get several pages of pencils done in a day. Inking, mm -hmm. I'm good for a page a day, sometimes a little more. Right. I suspect that number will increase. Yes, uh, it hasn't. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it hasn't <laughs> increased. I, I, I'll tell you what, I can ink well and I can ink fast. I can't do both at the same time. And I don't know if you, uh, you guys pretty much have done your homework. Have you seen anything else I post online when I do like a commission or a pinup and I have time to, when I can just take my time. And uh, I always find that that comes out better than my comic work and it's frustrating. I almost, mm. uh, I'm, I've been tempted to go back to just penciling. And I, I look for inkers. I don't know. I don't, I haven't found anybody yet that I really think meshes perfectly with me. Not that anybody's bad. I just, I haven't found my fit yet. <laughs> Find out what Mark, Mark Farmers were up to, maybe. Yeah. There, what are you laughing at? <laughs> well, there's a there, the um, a lot of the mainstream comics publishers, uh, in you know the the sort of style de jour of the last two decades mm -hmm. is much of it is slick, mm, and right. uh, looking at the three issues of the Cobra's Venom that Brian Shearer inked, there is a slickness mm -hmm. to it. And when you pencil and ink yourself in those other two issues and um, and in revolutionaries, uh, there is a there's a little grit to it. And I yes. don't know if it's uh, sort of dry brush or if uh, if it, there's a little bit of a grit. Yes, absolutely, I agree. Um, and it's not intentional, and which was, which is frustrating. Um, I, I'm always looking for that. You know what? I'm looking for that smooth Mark Farmer line. And I don't know if I'm just, you know, bad at it or if I'm deadline inking. Um, I use the pit, pit brush pens and um, sometimes, you know, just brush ink. And I use the, you know, the grease pencils. Sometimes when I want to do, uh, like, smoke, I'll use the gre uh, grease pencils in the smoke. Yeah, I don't know. It, I find the grit sometimes unattractive, but I'm just a, a self-deprecating artist, and that's what we do. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, 
I think we're getting we're getting close to being in the detail of two two eighty now. So so we can probably sw- swap switch gears and and sort of move into uh, comic comic talk. Comic talk, oh comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa, comic talk, oh comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. Okay, so today we are talking issue 280, which was released on the 28th of April 2021, which is this year. It's amazing. We're in the future. Wow, um, we made the, it. <laughs> we made it. The, the book uh, credits uh, have uh, the, the, the issue as being credited as being uh, February 2021. So, you know, that we're sort of aware that, you know, in the background, IDW years working getting these issues out has been some sort of a delay so we we have the the uh, the catch up happening now and being in the very privileged position of having fortnightly gi joe which um is uh, amazing oh is that um, happening yeah so we wow. we had issue 2 uh, 279 two weeks ago and we've got issue 281 in two weeks time i believe so, wow oh, I didn't, um, you know i didn't realize they were doing it because there was like eight weeks with no issues or something. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I wonder why that was. I wonder if that was pandemic related or something else. That, that was definitely catching up from all of the scheduling, both printing and distribution. And I think to a smaller extent, uh, talent. Yeah. Pencils down and all that. So the credits for this issue, we have Larry Hammer, writer, artist is credited as brian shearer with ron joseph but we now know <laughs> that that can have a line you know crossed out through it on your your copy at home um it is just ron joseph and as much as we love brian shearer he didn't have anything to do with this right. issue uh, colors jay brown letters neil utake senior editor tom waltz editor megan brown and research specialist that's a new title. Mm. Uh, congratulations on your promotion, Diana Davis. Yes. Um, let's take a look at the front of these books and, as we always do, uh, judge the book by its cover. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. So cover A is by uh, some guy called Ron Joseph and colours by Adam... Oh, I'm going to have to take a run up this. I always struggle. Adam Gazowski. Gazowski, thank you. Yeah, we've got Baroness, as discussed, on the uh, battlements of a uh, castle, possibly somewhere in Scotland, holding a, well, holding a, a sword, a pistol, and with a fur cloak uh, billowing in the in the breeze. Um, Ron, over to you. Do you want to tell us about the the process around uh, expanding on the process of what, what you've said already about landing on? On this particular cover you know it was I, I had already seen one or two covers that had been done um there was one from john royal and mm-hmm. um oh man i'm horrible i'm going to forget the name of the guy he, uh, kieran he's sitting McEwen. on the throne there we go um i was like well we've already got two pinup covers i'm like what am i gonna do it was really just like all right just like i said uh before she's associated with destro and i like the idea of the castle and um they're pretty loose with the covers so I just threw a few rough sketches together and, and sent them over, and, and Tom was uh, Tom liked them, Megan liked them, and I just, they told me to pick uh, you know pick whichever one you want and just run with that. Uh, I threw the cloak on there just to break up the 
how do I explain this? Uh, when you're not drawing something like the Hulk or a big action thing that can fill the whole page, you've got a woman and it's a slender figure. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, what am I going to do for the sides here if it's just going to be her? Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm going to give her this really cool cloak with a cobra mm-hmm. pendant on it. It was, it was really that simple. I needed to fill some space. Yeah, and I, th- <laughs> and I think this is a new invention, right? But it feels very much in keeping with the, the character. I guess. I mean, it doesn't look out of place, right? Yeah, I like the, I like the, the clasp on the, on the shoulder. Mm. Thank you. I did. It was. Uh, I wish I was a little better at drawing sexy women. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> I, it's not my strong suit. Monsters and 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 whatnot are, are, are right up my alley, and ugly things. Uh, Tim, any thoughts on on this uh, cover from you? Yeah. Uh, so uh, Guzowski colored uh, the main cover for the previous issue with he all did. of the yeah. planes and the pterodrome and. I know that uh, I know that he's done important coloring at IDW on some mm-hmm. high-profile projects. Um, I like his coloring on cover B more than his coloring on cover A. Um, uh, I'm I'm a sucker for a bad guy or Batman with a red sky behind them. Uh, I since Baroness's armor and all of the castle behind her are just about the same color, and her uh, fur cloak. does separate her from the castle Um, but there's a sameness to a lot of the elements here in the color work um, that uh, that i don't i don't love but i i do like the idea of this cover and i do like the red uh background and i like the i like this sort of aristocratic Mm -hmm. feeling for uh for baroness and also uh this this does not happen a lot with with gi joe um where uh, even though the covers tend not to be directly about what's in the issue, uh, oftentimes we'll get, you know, cover A uh, does have the character or characters from the issue, and then, you know, covers B and C are sort of other things. Uh, and this is one of those sort of, for IDW, rare occasions where it's a Baroness issue, and all three covers have the Baroness. <laughs> Go figure. Um, I do like cover B, uh, which is uh, Karen McKeown. McKeown. So Baroness is uh, is sitting. She's holding uh, a beverage, which might be wine, although uh, perhaps perhaps there's sort of a nod to the old um, comics code authority rules about blood can't be red; it has to be brown or black. Uh, this this wine is brown, so maybe it's maybe it's that Pepsi Max that Mark is having this morning, <laughs> and she's holding a pistol. Uh, I like her pose. I really like the two. Cobra soldiers behind them and how they're uh, knocked back just mm-hmm. a little bit uh, with uh, with some blue. Um, so there's a little bit of atmosphere between her and them. All of their all of their black lines and all of the black sort of behind them that they disappear into uh, are not a pure black. They're a, a slightly gray blue um, black. So uh, I do like this cover. I love seeing uh, original Cobra soldiers, right? I, I, as a kid, I sort of wondered what would happen to the Cobra soldiers after 86 when the basic Vipers were introduced. And uh, and in the comics, we we still see the Cobra soldiers. Should we move on to the, the retailer incentive cover? So we've got John Royal Jagdish Kumar on inks and colors by frequent collaborator James O'Frady, uh, Baroness uh, in the foreground, flanked by two female Cobra troopers firing behind her with a uh, Cobra flag uh, on flames in the uh, in the background. 
yeah, great work as as is fairly standard for 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 John John Royal. But uh, and it, I think this isn't the first Baroness cover that he's he's done. But uh, yeah, very nicely uh, nicely done and, and great colors from uh, uh, Freddie. The toy collectors uh, can can correct me here, um, but there was a uh, two pack or three pack. Uh, four years ago, which had some Cobra soldiers that were women. Mark, does this ring a bell? I remember um, seeing it. I, I remember I know seeing they it. They exist in some for, form. Um, I'll okay. have a quick Google, Google while you're talking. I, you're... Uh, uh, I'll kill some time by failing a sentence. Uh, I remember seeing a two pack or three pack at Joe Con uh, in the Hasro display, but then I, I can't follow up and say that it was a general store release or a, an online only or a fan club uh, release. Yeah. I love. Oh, here we go. In it? 2017, a Cobra Trooper was released in the official GI Joe Collectors Club as a three pack of uh, female Cobra Troopers. Thank you. And I think they each have different hair color, right? Do I think they have helmets, removable uh, helmets. Yeah, it looks like they've got removable helmets, uh, and one of them has got black hair. Uh, one of them has got. Oh, is that looks like maybe brown? And probably one is blonde. I'm guessing, yeah, this last the, one looks blonde or, or possibly even orange. James O'Frady's colors on this retailer incentive cover for issue 280 are gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Uh, there's only rendering in the sky behind them. Everything else is a hard edge, right? So it looks more like animation cell painting which is a really good look for G.I. Joe. Uh, you know, the comics and the cartoons are very different things to me, um, but hard edge cell shading color in comics really pop, particularly since so many comics are, are colored with a painterly rendered, you know, like 1990s, 2000s uh, uh, style. And, and it, this is really bold, right? Big red flag that's, basically just one color red with one uh, darker shade and then these these blues with these really gorgeous yellow and orange reflected light highlights on them fairness pops forward the two cobra soldiers have little hints of orange around them gorgeous yeah and there's there's this great uh, arc of light around baroness which is is sort of as you say making her pop uh, pop forward i love that cover uh john royal's got a very exciting style um goes in that j scott campbell school mm -hmm. yeah so we've got a trio of east side comic snake eyes uh variants uh so one of them has got trade dress one of them is uh has got no logo and then the third one is a daytime variant so it's the same essentially the same image and pose but um in the daytime without the the rain of the, the first one and these are all by uh i can't Quite make that out. Kirill Kirill Repin or Kirill Repin. Yeah. So here, uh, this pose. This is a this is a redraw of the Phil Gozier Snake Eyes uh, cover to GI Joe Special Edition Number mm -hmm. One. This was the comic that was published after the final Marvel issue, which was the unpublished uh, Todd McFarlane uh, issue from several years earlier. So uh, that cover for G.I. Joe Special Edition 1 had a cover swipe of the Todd McFarlane 1990 Spider-Man number one, 
uh, cover pose. And so this is now getting redrawn again, and then it's uh, very heavily digitally colored. And I don't understand <laughs> how it's helpful or fun to have snake eyes on a comic that he's not in. And he's decidedly not. Like, this is just a spotlight uh, baroness issue. And I, I don't slight any store that wants to get an exclusive cover to celebrate something special, like an anniversary issue or an anniversary for the store, mm -hmm. uh, or to make money, because comic book stores, I know, have a challenge in making money. But I do think that exclusives and variants should make sense. And <laughs> I like I like this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a small reproduction of this. I like this image. Um, but I don't understand this image. <laughs> I know a lot of the uh, the fans of the the comics and the, particularly the variant covers have been going a bit bit wild for for this one. Um, so so there's definitely a, a market uh, for it. You know, I we've talked about this before. We're not you know big fans of the the variants and and you know it's just not 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 my bag, baby. Right. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's interesting though that it is a swipe of uh, an homage to begin with and. And the the layout of of the image is is very you know is steering very very closely to the original Phil Gossier, uh image. You know, right. if you look particularly at, for example, the the positioning of the um, the knife in Snake Eye's hand, which you know obviously wasn't there originally in the Spider Man illustration. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it is a, a very faithful rendition or sub, um, updating of that of that image. There we go. Can I add something? I'm sorry to interrupt. Can I add something to the something go, one go, of go. you guys said? I can't. I can't. Um, I can't critique an artist for putting a character on the cover that isn't in the comic because <laughs> back when the Hasbroverse stuff was going on, they did these artist edition covers, and I was asked to do one for Mask, and I had a shot of one of the cars from Mask flying under an underpass in Manhattan, and Grimlock was chasing it. <laughs> Right. And it says in this big exciting blurb in this issue, you know, Grimlock versus Mask or Mask versus Grimlock, and at the very bottom it says Grim Grimlock does not actually appear in this issue. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guilty of that as well. That's a bit of fun, though. I like that. <laughs> People were a little pissed off. I read some comments on forums. I'm like, yeah, well, what do you got to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plot breakdown. What actually happened in this issue? Following on from the events of issue 34, published in 1985, Wild Weasel and the Baroness crash land their Rattler on the tarmac of Springfield Airport. No sooner has the Baroness been dragged from the burning wreckage by Techno Vipers than she is taken by Night Raven to Paris. On the outskirts of Paris in Montmartre Abattoir, Baroness meets Major Blood and some topless Vipers who are interrogating a prisoner to find out the route of the motorcade carrying the Barovian Prime Minister. Later, Blood attacks the motorcade from the back of a stinger and is joined by his vipers in an armoured vehicle. The Baroness finds out from Destro that Blood is playing a triple cross to kill the Prime Minister and pin the blame on Cobra, and launches an attack from a heavily armed Vespa scooter, killing the vipers and putting a stop to Blood's plans. The issue concludes with the Prime Minister indicating that he can work something out with Cobra after all. There we go. Another one and done action packed issue. So what struck me as interesting about this one, having, you know, looked at the previous four, I believe, untold tales in this mini arc, most of those kind of could 
exist in in isolation and you can't quite pin where they're going to happen in uh, in the GI Joe history so it's interesting that this one is is kind of more directly linked to uh, an existing issue in terms of that uh, you know picking up where issue 34 ended and and doing something a little bit closer to to what perhaps they were doing with the Hasbro comic pack toys where they they release a number of um, issues which you know filled in the the gaps in between um, issues in terms of your process for for this one run that mm. it struck me as as possibly it, there was this kind of quite a, a a simplicity to to the to the style quite an open style like a lot of the backgrounds you know in terms of the the not the colors but the way the way that, that you've drawn it mm. aren't necessarily d- defined and i wondered whether that was a, a throwback an intentional throwback to, to maybe it being you know, a sequel to an issue that was released in the eighties, where we, where we would see a lot of you know hard, you know, pure 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 color backgrounds as as a panel rather than a detailed you know rendering of every single one, or if that was in, in, intentional or or not, or or if it was a process of of just being under deadline pressure that that you or or just you know your natural style. Over to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, there was definitely a bit of a deadline issue. I got the script a lot later than I thought I was going to, and I had other projects that people had been waiting to get done. Um, so I felt a little bit under the gun. So, I, I, you know, I had to cut a few corners. Um, <laughs> no lie, I had to cut a few corners here and there. Um, so you get some panels that were I had to rely on the colorist to fill in the background. I mean, make it look pretty for me. Sure. No, I mean, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's not necessary to to the to the de- to the detriment of you know some of that detail being being lost. I was I was curious as right. to, to whether it was uh, in, intentional. Yeah, uh, no, not, you know certainly very a lot of my favorite a lot of my favorite issues from the likes of uh, uh, Wiggum. It would be it would be the the panel in the you know the the character in the foreground mm-hmm. with the with the rest you know the background as a uh, a solid color, not necessarily depicting the. Uh, the actual space that, that they're, they're in, for example. Right. Okay, Tim. Do you... oh, Tim's muted. He might be having a pee break. I'm right here. <laughs> I'm, I'm just li- I'm just listening. <laughs> Tim Tim will Tim will sort of uh, listen to to my my idle chitter chatter and then come in come in with the with the killer questions <laughs> that uh, really dig into the the insight. Once my more superficial uh, you know waffle right. has, has been has, has, has been dealt with. <laughs> uh, so Ron yeah. does uh, does the artwork of Rod Wiggum in issue thirty four. Mm-hmm. Does it does it speak to you at all in your approach to this issue uh, since? you draw differently than so you know mark's question is about sort of backgrounds and an openness or maybe a little less detail um uh i mean when nowadays when anyone draws a scene that takes place in a 1960s jack kirby marvel comic they draw a little bit or a lot like jack kirby and it's cute and fun until you realize that like certain artists like won't get hired to draw modern stories because they only draw quote quote retro and it sort of becomes this this weird rule so did you feel any interest or pressure or were you investigating rod wiggum's approach in issue 34 or is it just a matter of continuity like well here's how the rattler's damaged i'm going to draw it the same well definitely uh something like the damage on the rattler um before when I got the, before I got the script, I'd actually gotten uh, I think it was like a, a GI Joe Bible, and it was like twenty issues of of Joe from that run. Um, so I, I had a I had a day or two of reading, 
uh, the PDFs of uh, all the old Jold issues, and especially, of course, the one that I had to follow up. So, yes, paying attention to the detail on the Rattler uh, was important. Uh, that was that was gone pretty quick though, and then the rest of it was a new story. Um, but I didn't I didn't make a conscious decision to try to emulate uh, any of the original artist's work, um, mm-hmm. and just to you know do what I, I do what I do. Um, okay, and then the follow up question mm-hmm. is: Have you been to Paris? And <laughs> does this issue, as as an artist or as a world traveler or as a tourist? Does this present a particular challenge or thrill? Uh, no, I have never been to Paris, um, except via Google Maps. I, I went on Google Maps, actually, and I started typing in streets and areas uh, that take place in the book, and I picked out photos or, or shots from from Google Maps to see if I could, you know, try to draw those, um, you know, street scenes or storefronts or, or whatnot. Um, especially I needed, you know, reference for the Moulin Rouge. Uh, was was some of uh so hama was providing reference for vehicles was he also providing any reference for backgrounds or was that oh, no, that was to you? that was all me and i don't know if i got them all right but i mean they were all taken from pictures from france in paris so <laughs> i suspect that part of the interest for hama in writing this issue is that he has been to paris mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that I like about this issue, this is sort of one of my overall points, one of my sort of talking points for this issue, is that uh, this can be uh, a familiar thrill for a few readers who live in or have been to Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know how specifically Hama is is tracking a scene from one location to another you know it's like you see a movie and someone's in Times Square and then like the next scene they're like you know at ellis island yeah, right it's like no that would take an that would take an hour um but uh so to the extent that there's still sort of the comic book or storytelling logic of uh you know someone changing places conveniently but also that you know gi joe is international mm-hmm. and if gi joe itself is mostly american and not too international then certainly cobra is international so uh, as a reader uh and as a gi joe consumer um you know, oh, cool! It's not just a Baroness uh, spotlight issue. It's a, it's an issue that takes place in a specific mm-hmm. place, uh, and also it takes place in a specific moment in the Giadel continuity. Because not only does the opening scene carry on from a previous issue, but uh, Major Blood's final bit of dialogue alludes to another issue upcoming right. then in 1985. The rally, right? See you with the rally. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah, one of one of my sort of just reactions reading the issue was that 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 sort of issue thirty four continuation, you know, felt somewhat disconnected from from the rest of the story. I mean, it you know, in terms of the plot mechanics, it doesn't. It's not necessarily a requirement right. of the the rest of the 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 story. And I, I it I guess definitely hits nostalgia feels in terms of that that issue mm-hmm. was in most people most yojo fans top five issues some people it's their you know all-time favorite issue so so i can understand the the desire to um revisit it and um yeah i don't know how i necessarily completely feel feel about it whether i would have liked just the main rest of the story to to continue or or, or you know that that sequence is fun uh but but it's yeah somewhat dis- disconnected and i want is it could have the, potentially there there been a thinking of it's almost like a 
a James Bond style framing device where you get a little nugget of the previous adventure finishing right. before you launch into mm-hmm. the into another, you know, Indiana Jones or, or James, James Bond's kind of you often have that kind of extended um, uh, opening sequence, which doesn't necessarily relate to the to the main body of uh, right. the, the rest of the movie. Well, the thing about the James Bond, like if you're watching a movie, this the whole plane landing scene would have been like a pre-credit scene, maybe takes five exactly. to seven minutes, and then you still have a, maybe a two-hour movie. This is a 20-page comic. I, I don't know if I necessarily mm-hmm. would have spent five or six pages landing the plane uh, and then, you know, and then getting into the next story, which was, you know, we went from a, from a dogfight in the sky to a, a, a car chase through France, and uh, even though the issues came out decades apart from each other in Baroness's timeline, it's 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 like the next day. It's like I just got off the plane and now I'm I'm now I'm racing through the streets. I might have uh, I might have had this story start with her waking up in an infirmary or something after the crash, and then recap mm-hmm. the crash in a page. I, it, that's just me. Um, I've been thinking about this since I read the comic. Uh, I really like the first five pages, and I really like the the next 15 pages or 14 pages minus the sort of transition page. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't think it is as effective to uh, push these two stories together, Mm -hmm. but I also, uh, I also, I appreciate the attempt. One of the things that strikes me about the Larry Hama GI Joe comics is that he is occasionally experimenting. I think in a way that, uh, uh, a lot of comics writers, don't you know silent interlude uh sfx mm-hmm. uh the, the wordless story in yearbook three uh diptych triptych which is what is that 125 126 or 124 125 and uh 250 was was silent right issues with you know a single character uh issues where it's sort of a new joe and some uh bystanders if if this was like an X-Men comic or a Batman comic, I might feel cynical about this. Like, oh, the writer is trying to latch on to some nostalgia uh, or the publisher's trying to goose some sales of a collection of an older story. What I think I see here is uh, a writer sort of casting about for a motivating event which may not connect because sometimes the mission just take, you know, it's like, I just finished a mission, right? And... And I think Haba has been interested in, in subtle and in overt ways, referring to the Marvel continuity. I think because re- readers are asking him to. I think because uh, sometimes it's easier to just sort of treat the second half of this series, the IDW run, as its own thing, even though it still connects with the Marvel run. Uh, I think in this case, linking these two stories wasn't Hama's most successful mm. uh, bit of writing. But I appreciate the attempt because right. I really like the I really like everything about the dialogue. I like the sort of sense of honor and duty um, with the crash. I love Mark knows this. I love that the Techno Vipers show up and do a Techno Viper mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like I didn't when you, when you turn the page right after they the three te- Techno Vipers rescue the Baroness and Wild Weasel. You turn the page and there's a splash, and this is the only splash in the whole issue, and. Uh, you know, a lot of the Marvel run, either page one was a splash or uh, later on, a lot of times pages two and three were a splash with the title and credits. And IDW, for whatever reason, doesn't have the credits in the comic. I mean, we, we can guess the reasons. It's not a mystery. And IDW issues don't have titles. 
And what this page does is slows you down. Because in the language of comics, more panels per page, it's like in film, faster edits, faster cuts, right? It, it, it picks up the pace. And when you, when you hit a full page, you're supposed to slow down, particularly if you turn the page, right? So I love this sense of relief that uh, the body language in Wild Weasel and thereness, right? She's got her hand on her neck. He's got his hand on his forehead. He's got his helmet. They're, they're leaning against an emergency vehicle. And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, you have to go, you have to go halfway around the world right, right. now. It's an interesting observation, Tim, because often, particularly if thinking about like 90s image books or, or whatever, the splash page is, is often the climactic bit of action. You know, it's the big action sequence of the hero, you know, maybe the team all jumping together, you know, showing, showing it off. And, and here we've got the splash being a quiet moment of a, you know, an, a moment of breathing out and following the, the, that, that tra traumatic uh, crash. It's yeah, it's a, it's a kind of different approach to a splash than, than maybe you would typically see. So um, yeah, inter interesting choice. Ron, yes. the, the, one of the things I noticed about this particular page is I, th I think this is the first time we've uh, ever seen Wild Weasel uh, helmetless. Right. Uh, so, so obviously you've made some uh, design choices there about what you think uh, Wild Weasel might look like. Or Ron, are you realizing right now that you're the first person to draw this and it wasn't a big deal? I did not know that. Um, <laughs> I had no idea that he had never been uh, drawn without his helmet before. And here's, uh, here's, here's a, uh, um, I didn't know if he, if there was one wild weasel and then other people with the same uniform that weren't codenamed. I mean, wild mm -hmm. weasel, uh, I wondered if there were just, you know, there were the Cobra troopers and they all looked the same. Like, I didn't know if there was mm -hmm. one that stood out among the other ones. The Wild Weasel didn't know quite if it was his, just a title or one character's name. That Because there are other Rattlers. Who flies the other one? Sure. Right? You are taking us back in time to 1984 <laughs> when many of us wondered this too. And the comic book and the TV show answered these questions uh -huh. for us. Well, I, I don't yeah, have so the, the answers. The prevailing <laughs> wisdom is that we have one Wild Weasel who is a character... And then many Rattler pilots ah. who potentially are wearing the same uniform. Okay. Well, then to quote Unicron, it pleases me to be the first. <laughs> for, for our listeners, this is for our listeners. This is uh, Ron's second Transformers the movie <laughs> reference. Uh, he, ma he made his first one before we we pressed the record button. Back when I was uh, being an old man techie here. Uh, was there another part of the question that I forgot to answer? Um, I was asking um, how you landed on the look of Wild Weasel. If the, you know, what, what what sort of thoughts you had in, into that? Um, well, I definitely wanted to go with you know some sort of cropped hair, not quite military style hairdo. I mean, he's uh, mm -hmm. you know, so I went with because I didn't know the, the significance. I didn't know uh, I didn't know how to generic or uh, unique to make him look. And I think I was mm -hmm. probably reading some you know looking at other stuff or pictures of military people. I'm always uh, referencing photos and whatnot and, you know, catch a look from somebody in a photo. I'm like, I kind of like that. He looks, you know, like a, a weary pilot that just had a huge dog fight. I'm like, I'm going to go with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is the, this is the interview answer that launches a thousand action figure customs. Now everyone knows how to how to sculpt a head or to find a head for either wild weasel figure without a helmet. Everyone, go, go. I was going to say, I think you your comment there you you reminded me. Was it was it that 
Tom Waltz posted a picture yes. of, of a military man? Yes. Uh, it was uh, Tom, uh, Tom posted a picture of himself um, from his military uh-huh. days. And I looked at it and I found it and I, and I sent it back to him. I said, hey, can I use this? And he's like, oh, absolutely, go ahead. And I think that was for, uh, and I, I made a tweet about it as well. It might have been the Military Appreciation Day or Veterans Day or there was a specific thing going on. And I wanted to, uh, I want to honor him with that. He's saying he loved it, so he was like, "Yeah, go ahead, have fun." But it was, uh, it was Larry Hammer that actually called for Wild Weasel to have his helmet off in the script. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It wasn't something I just decided to do. Yeah, I mean, with the broken um, visor as well, it makes sense mm. that you're not gonna, you know, and it, obviously it wouldn't be comfortable and stuff. So I yeah, would imagine sense for it, right? Just jumping out of a burning airplane, you'd want to get your helmet off because it's probably stifling. And what was interesting about this this sequence, this opening sequence, and potentially how it's echoed in the rest of the the story, was that that here you have um, the techno vipers marching in to save Baroness and the, and Wild Weasel, sort of working their way through the flames, uh-huh. risking life and limb just before the the plane explodes. You know, no worries, Baroness. Techno vipers are on the job. And then following page, Baroness is reflecting, you know, another few seconds we would have been incinerated. Wild Weasel saying, those Technovipers risked everything to get us out of there. And and often yeah, the Cobras are being portrayed as somewhat cowardly or, mm-hmm. or you know, very selfish. Or something. So it's interesting that, uh, yeah, the, these Technovipers, they're not following, following that tip, typical trend of characterization. They are being portrayed almost you know, as heroes mm-hmm. in, in this, from this framing view. Of, uh... This, this picks up a thematic thread from Shakedown from issue 34 in that Wild Weasel has respect for his, whatever it is, for his opponent, for, in this case, his subordinate. And I, mean, I think even in sort of the villainy of Cobra, you know, a pilot is going to appreciate the ground crew. Right. But it's, it's, uh, Mark's right. It's great to read it. And then, you know, sort of as, as, and as this, this sort of motivating bit of irony, Baroness can then, can then say, she's agreeing, we all deserve some R&R after that. And then Destro <laughs> interrupts her and says, gotta go to Paris. There should be an issue, there should be a, a sub, like a, a small issue of Wild Weasel just relaxing and having cocktails and watching TV and whatnot. <laughs> well, well, what's Baroness doing? <laughs> Meanwhile... I would, I would very much like to read an additional. Maybe okay. So we've got a, a four or five issue arc coming up. There's probably going to be like a three issue arc after that. Uh, maybe for 2022, <laughs> we can have four or five or six self-contained issues. Uh, I'd love it if Hama writes a single issue with Wild Weasel. Maybe mm, it could great. pick up from the end of this scene. Maybe you can draw it. Maybe Wild Weasel has his helmet. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> I bet I'd love to see him sitting in his house with his like pajamas and a bathrobe on with the helmet on. And maybe a straw sticking through the thing so he can this... sip Pepsi Max. <laughs> and he's wearing a onesie, but the onesie is uh, has the uh, has the Rattler pilot design on it. Uh, <laughs> I could use myself as reference. So that would be easy. Yeah. The, and the, the next page after this one, ironically, has uh, a Strato Viper as the pilot to take um, Baroness to uh, to Paris. Mm-hmm. And the Strato Vipers are normally portrayed as the uh, the asshole of uh, the Cobra Legion <laughs> who, uh, who, you know, d- really don't get on with the ground crew right. to the extent that the ground crew sabotage their uh, ejector seat um, levers right. and uh, can't let them uh, escape. <laughs> I do uh, like what you, to touch on something you said before uh, about uh, you like that there was a respect or a bit of a nobility, um, not only, you know, wild in Wild Weasel, but 
just the, from the Techno Vipers as well. And I, I enjoy that when villains are portrayed, even if they're assholes and they're villains and you know they want to do bad things. I like when there's a respect or when there's, like you said, like a nobility or some sort of code of ethics or morals. Um, mm. And like uh, Larry did that with Dr. Mindbender back in the Cobra's Venom arc. And I, oh, yeah. I really with appreciated him. that. That was one of my favorite little bits was that my Dr. Mindbender not only did the right thing, but then he went and uh, sent that prosthetic leg. That's right. To, yeah. Uh, yeah, this, I love that. This bit with Wild Weasel and the Baroness is also an important contrast within issue 280 because we like the Baroness and we end up really liking Wild Weasel, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and these Techno Vipers, like, okay, Cobra's doing its job. Cobra gets along with Cobra. This sets up a <laughs> contrast with Major Blood being a slimy worm mm-hmm. at the, <laughs> later in the issue. And these three vipers who may not really be vipers, but are sort of mercenaries that that blood has hired uh, is, is the implication. So again, I think, uh, again, in terms of, I feel like rereading this, you know, in six months or a year, uh, I'll, I'll like this issue more, even if it still feels like linking a, sort of a new story set back then with an old story that we all uh, love so much um, wasn't successful. Um, uh, I think there's still things about this this issue that work really mm-hmm. well. Something that's really unusual about this issue is that there are no Joes. And uh, this has happened a few times in G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. um, but it almost never happens. Mm-hmm. We've certainly had issues certainly issues of special missions, the spinoff series where there's no Cobra. Um, but in this issue, uh, the sort of main faction we think about GI Joe is not here, not even on the covers. Uh, and then we, we just have Cobra, but we have these two factions of Cobra. We have sort of normal, like good, bad Cobra. And then we have like unusual, bad, bad Cobra, right? Major right. blood. And then we also have this sort of third faction, which is the Barovian, uh, is it ambassador? Yeah, uh, yes. Prime minister, I think. Prime minister. Prime minister. So, um, so an unusual issue in lots of mm-hmm. ways, right? We have we don't have that many self-contained issues in GI Joe. Uh, we have very few issues with just the villains, um, and uh, you know what's worse than the villain, right? Like this is this is as a writer, um, and and Hama Hama referred to this in that opening arc. Uh, he wrote of G.I. Joe Origins, which was the sort of not Marvel continuity, but the sort of main IDW, like what we a lot of people call the Chuck Dixon continuity. Um, so Hama wrote the opening arc of G.I. Joe Origins, where um, it's like, what's worse than Cobra, right? Who's the villain in that G.I. Joe universe who's worse than Cobra? So as a writer challenge for anyone who's listening, when you write a story and you have your villain, right? It's like, what's worse than, in the animated series, right? What's worse than Cobra Commander? Serpentor. Mm-hmm. What's worse than Serpentor? Cobra Law, right? What's worse than Megatron? Unicron, <laughs> right. right? As a reader, or as a reader, do you guys appreciate that? Like a, 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 an all-Cobra issue with no Joes in it? Or is that some one of those, geez, I want Joes in my G.I. Joe. I just I wonder. It's awesome. The, as long as the no, story is interesting, and um, then then it's fine for me. Yeah, it's awesome. I this comic has gone for so long and has had so many uh so many hands involved. I'm I'm always ready for an unusual or an experimental right. issue. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, I appreciate the attempt even if the experiment uh doesn't click the same way that a quote normal issue mm-hmm. would. 
Okay. Because you're, you know, you're, you're not going to get an issue like this of Uncanny X-Men. Like, there's just not going to be an issue which is about, like, Magneto. I mean, right now in X-Men, Magneto is one of the good guys mm-hmm. and he lives with the X-Men on their island. But in the 90s, you're just not going to get an, an entire issue where Magneto is dealing with some other evil mutant, right? right. <laughs> true, very true. Um, and, and, and sort of one of my main points that I like to make over and over to either lapsed G.I. Joe readers or uh, grumpy G.I. Joe readers, right, is that uh, this comic is unlike every other comic book, right? Not just because it's like gone for so long or because the same person's written it or because it's based on a toy, but in terms of how it's written, right? Like you're certainly never gonna have an issue of like, okay, let's say not something uh, highfalutin like X-Men, but something sort of ground level like the Punisher, Mm -hmm. right? No one's gonna write an issue of Punisher, 80s, 90s, 2021, where he's in France and someone pulls out uh what is this, the tap 10 what is this uh yeah. <laughs> this vespa 150 tap thank you oh. <laughs> uh this you know like uh this this comic is unusual mm-hmm. because it's it's got good guys and bad guys in very specific costumes it's got vehicles which are characters as much as the humans and yet it's sort of real world and where it can be, uh, you know, places. Um, but then there are these. Anyway, this this is sorry. This is my very general like this comic's great. Everyone should read this comic. But let's get back to talking specifically about 280. Sure. <laughs> okay, very good. So so yeah, that, so that that theme of the noble cobras kind of continues on from into the second part of the story where we've got we don't have the G.I. Joes being in the heroic role, but we've then got the Baroness in, in that that role sort of. I guess initially sort of expressing her disgust at, at, Bar- at the Major Blood's treatment of his his prisoner and, and sort of execute ultimate execution, uh, and then following sort of that trying to thwart his uh, his triple cross. So that kind of that theme sort of does does sort of kin- continue continue through. Major Blood does uh, does sort of have uh, an element of his character at one point where he. Uh, mm. Uh, he's it looks like he's on the back of the stinger doing some poetry i'm i'm not entirely sure if if i've quite got the pantameter of this uh poem right in my my brain or how it how it works i feel like i'm missing something possibly when you're riding on a stinger and you have an itchy trigger finger do not sneeze or twitch for this will prematurely launch a missile is is the idea there that that there should be something that rhymes or is it just that he's a bad poet? I'm going to guess both. <laughs> What's the missing word? When you're riding on a stinger, you have an itchy trigger finger. Do not sneeze or twitch for this all. Uh, well, some, sometimes there's 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 a joke in popular culture where you uh, you set up a a bad word, uh, where you where you set up a bad word and then you surprise your audience by. Uh, cutting left and not saying the bad word but is what is the um, bad word <laughs> i i don't know uh and i i i'm not sure that this is a puzzle i i think it's enough that it's a bad poem and he breaks his uh his uh his rhyming scheme and uh so he's on the back of this um stinger jeep which is one of my favorites and doesn't necessarily always get a lot of panel time and um he's shooting a missile from the from the back and it looks like yeah, blood is the controller almost of this this missile. I'd already, I'd, I'd always sort of interpreted uh, it as being controlled by the driver on the uh, interior of the vehicle, but um, 
Um, uh, if I, I remember I guess... correctly, blood was supposed to be in the stinger. Um, okay. But I was looking at it, and I, I think, it, and then there was the scene where uh, there was something that had to happen. I'm like, well, if he's inside, I don't know how well this is going to work. So I just put him on the outside, and and they were okay with it. They didn't complain. Okay. And I kind of like uh, the idea of him being like a like a mad Captain Ahab, you know, <laughs> and she's she's Moby Dick, and he's let's get her, you know. <laughs> Uh, and then we've got we've got uh, yeah we've got an almost like sort of in the in the eighties feel to to this book we do have um, uh, a busload or, or carload of uh, nuns who are put in uh, jeopardy which uh, feels like uh, feels does feel like a, a part of something that you might see in an action movie uh, in the in the in the time we've got Baroness coming to uh, the rescue in a Vespa one fifty tap which uh, is described um, by one of the Vipers, I think. He says, is that a 150 tap? I saw one in Les Invillards at the Para exhibit. I, I wonder if uh, if Larry Hammer has also been to this Para exhibit. Um, so what is this? It's an anti-tank scooter made in the 1950s from a Vespa scooter for use with French paratroops and was introduced in 1956. Modifications from the civilian Vespa included a reinforced frame and three-inch recoilless rifle mounted to the scooter. The scooters would be parachute dropped in pairs, accompanied by a two-man team. The gun was carried on one scooter while the ammunition was loaded on the other. The recoilless rifle was never designed to be fired from the scooter. The gun was mounted on an M1917 Browning machine gun tripod, which was also carried by the scooter before being fired. However, in an emergency, it could be fired while in the frame and while the scooter was moving, which indeed is what happens uh, here when uh, we have this sort of armoured carrier that is exploded uh, from uh, armament being launched from uh, the Vespa. And when I first read this issue, I was like, what on earth is this? But I did have confidence that uh, that it would be based in some sort of reality. And when I did the research, uh, indeed, this was a thing that uh, existed that I was not aware of. And where else but in a Larry Hammer book would you be learning about uh, armaments like this? When I read the when I read the scene where the Baroness fires her seventy five millimeter shell from the front uh, cannon, I thought, wait a minute, that would that would push her back. That would that would punch the Vespa back, and she'd flip off the front. Uh, this should have a reco- recoil. And then I thought, no, I bet Hama researched this, <laughs> if not like you know, rode one one day a long time ago. Uh, right. This must not have this must not have recoil. And then. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark sent over uh, that tiny bit of uh, research, and it is indeed recoilless. Wow! You had mentioned the uh, the expo. Um, only reference that Larry sent me from the Vespa was clearly from some type of show or an exhibit. I, I also I also wonder if that exhibit. Uh, okay, so factually, that exhibit may have been running in 1985 when this story sort of ostensibly takes place. Although, you know, like any story where characters don't age, but it's published for 30 years. <laughs> when does it take place? It takes place now. But I also wondered if what's embedded here is a story of the Baroness's ingenuity in either having one already in a safe house or borrowing one from some agent in Paris or stealing one from some other 
collector or uh, warehouse. Um, or potentially this public e- exhibit with a kind of the, you know, historical, you know, scooter being on display to the public. Right. Um, and this vehicle that, that ex- explodes. So we've got a blue vehicle, like an armored personnel carrier type vehicle. Um, Ron, do you know, do you remember from, from the, the, the script what, what this, this thing actually is? Because I don't think it's based on a G.I. Joe toy. Uh, no, the, uh, I think it is, because um, I had gone online and found photos of it. Let me see if I'm going to go to my Joe folder really quick. Um, okay. I may have the pictures of the toy, and I can give you the name. Ooh, music to my ears, oh. Ron's <laughs> Joe folder. <laughs> um, I feel like a kid that hasn't done his homework. Where am I? What percentage of your time would you say, Tim, you, you spend navigating through Joe folders? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I've, I'm staring at paper folders. My hand is on my computer where I have dozens and dozens of digital folders. Uh, I'd say 99% of my day. Uh, if I'm not eating or if I'm not eating or sleeping. <laughs> I've got the script here. I'm going to uh, what page would, would did that thing pop up on? Do you remember? Might be like 13 12, or 14. 13. 13, okay, very good. I'm on 11, 12, yeah, 13. 13. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know what? Just as the Cobra APC. Okay. Hmm. Uh, it's got the Cobra sigil on. But yeah, the Cobra APC comes screeching around a corner and joins the chase behind the limo. Make sure the Cobra huh. sigil is, is on the front. But I've, I've seen, I, I think I probably have a reference for it here too, uh, an actual photo. I don't know if I should send it to you if I'm allowed to or not though. <laughs> Uh, Mark, Mark, are, are you and I revealing our ignorance of some of the later, like, 2005, 2010 toys by not, not sh- recognizing this? I'm not sure. I'm seeing some photos. I think this is a... What I'm seeing is like a... Hmm. See, the, if you type a- in Cobra APC on Google, it comes up with some tanks and Humvee-looking vehicles, but not the one that I had uh, in my... Uh, I think I've found the one that you've got. G.I. Joe and Cobra 3D His Tank designs. So I think this is, uh, I think this might be a fan. Oh, here we go, yeah. I have, oh, yes, it's right here. G.I. Joe Cobra, uh, APC Custom Loose G.I. Joe Cobra 1983 Vintage is uh, up on Pinterest. I found some. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see, I can see the reference that you would have been using, but yeah, I think it's a, a fan, um, a fan designed vehicle. Really? This one's yeah. slightly different than the one I had used, but um, it's it's basically the same thing. Oh, I'm gonna send you the thing I used. I just found if you want it, if you want it. Yeah, cool, please. Cool. Okay, so so that blue APC is based on uh, the Cobra APC uh, that you you found the reference for on uh, online. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I mean, yeah, there is because we've we've got sort of various GI Joe APCs, but uh, less uh, less sort of the direct equivalents probably in the Cobra, Cobra Armory. So just yeah, like we see, kind of uh, an invented uh, Cobra troop transport for for the chopper, which um, it, you know in the Aspid, we kind of got a, a similar kind of similar process happening here, I guess for the for the uh, for the ground based APC. If if this needed to be an existing GI Joe Cobra vehicle, I'm guessing it would be the Rage, which is isn't the Rage sort of an urban tank? Like urban yeah. classification. Yeah, I don't know um, how many people fit fit in it, but yeah, it's a bit yeah, a bit bigger and clunky. Also, it's, this feels like it's, a, a a proper pretty, urban 
Uh, yeah, that's true. Also, yeah. the range is pretty wide, and I assume all these narrow French mm. streets are very, very narrow. Yeah. Narrow. The kind of other observation we had more about the story and the and the character was the um, Major Blood's attitude to to Baroness um, is is a bit bit strange in terms of the the keeping of what was what was happening at mm-hmm. that particular era. He sort of you know acts like he's somehow untouchable by by Cobra Commander, and I didn't quite get that that plot point because I I thought at this point in time, Cobra Commander had not long locked him up. And, um, and generally had a, a dis- dislike for him. And um, Baroness and Major Blood were kind of firm, firm friends at this right. par- this parallel point. They were plotting together to uh, assassinate Cobra Commander uh, at the at the rally. So um, it does seem a little bit strange that uh, they've they've had this whole <laughs> this whole tête-à-tête. Uh, yeah, good expression, keeping in with the French uh, theme. Um, uh, you know, on the in the streets of Paris, and, and you know, launching missiles at one another, uh, and then uh, before you know, jet, jetting back to to Springfield and being a uh, uh, best buds again. Right. Yeah, not a lot you could do about that, that Ron. But no, um, really, nothing. In terms of <laughs> keeping with continuity, it, it sort of seems a, a little bit uh, like a slight, uh, slight misstep. Yeah, I'd seen that brought up on on a discussion forum. Um, I, I couldn't really add anything to that discussion. I think it was just one of those things that I was like, I don't, I don't know why I can't do anything about that. <laughs> there, there was a, uh, there was a, a little bit of an interesting discussion there that was prompted by uh, the letters page where someone had uh, the gall to write in and oh say to Larry that um, what was the expression that he, he some, that they let him get away with another silent issue, which um, seemed like it touched a nerve <laughs> with with Larry, with Larry, oh. despite the rest of the letter actually being pretty uh pretty complimentary i think it was a bit a bit of a tongue-in-cheek uh comments from the letter writer uh, but wasn't potentially received uh received that way oh um, i he... think i i think i uh i lightly disagree i think hama <laughs> has a efficient and matter-of-fact way of answering questions and uh, like writing like writing an email and like answering questions at conventions and I don't think he's swatting this down. I think he's just stating it plainly. I think if he was sitting in front of you, he'd say, oh, nobody let me get away with another, nobody let me get away with another silent issue. Mm-hmm. I did that on my own. As it's, I don't think it's meant to like, nobody let me get away. <laughs> I think it's not that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't think there's necessarily really any criticism implied by the, the letter letter writer. Right. Um, he, does, he does open it up with a question at the end though, whether he should do another silent issue ever again, what do other readers think? And you know, certainly we've we've had a pinnacle in terms of issue twenty one and um, the the yearbook that he did, which was that yearbook three potentially, um, was also uh, very good. We we had SFX, which was uh, I think in the in the eighties, um, the issues the eighties which was again another high point of the of the the run where that was just purely sound effects and, and no no dialogue since then you know potentially potentially diminishing re- returns i don't know that any of the silent issues has been bad but um i, I think it's a, a road well well traveled and it's not something necessarily that I'd be holding my breath for for, for Larry to to re- revisit unless there was a particularly strong um idea that that he had which would fit it 
I'll answer a little differently. Uh, I would love another silent issue. It has to be with the right artist Mm because this kind of visual storytelling is a, is a particular challenge. And, and if you want an example of where it doesn't always work, uh, was it in 2001, 2002 that Marvel published an entire month of wordless comics and it was called enough said. And most of those just read like issues where someone wrote a comic and then someone else drew it and then they turned off the lettering layer. Like a lot of it was not <laughs> wonderful sort of spatial choreography and visual storytelling. It was just like, well, there's there's no there's no dialogue or sound effects. Uh, I would love to see a wordless issue of G.I. Joe that with the right artist does something a little different. So like not necessarily a ninja issue. And now that we've had... Uh, 275 like a big splash page um action issue something something smaller uh maybe maybe hmm, maybe an all cobra silent issue Mm. um but i think i sort of sort of any of hama's questions in the letters page in the last five years where he says uh he leaves it open for readers to chime in like oh would you you want to see this my answer (laughs) is always yes it's like oh do you want to see like more obscure characters like crystal ball and repeater yes you want a silent issue Yes. Yeah. Do you want untold tales? Yeah. Yeah. Should we? Yeah. Should we do some self-contained issues? Do you want some flashbacks? Uh, should I invent a new character? Uh, should I tell Shooter's story? This, you know, this this sort of non-existent, existent Joe um, that started out as, a, as an inside joke. Yes. The answer is always yes. Should we go bi-weekly again? That's my question. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Okay, let's move on to I Spy. So the little Easter eggs and nuggets of detail that we might have picked out that that haven't been discussed so far. I I Spy spy with my little eye. So we discussed this a little bit, but I Spy a Techno Viper. But issue 34 was from April 1985. Techno Viper released in 87. Similarly, uh, the Viper in 86 and... uh, and also Strato Vipers a little bit later as well. So um, some people may be less happy with uh, the chronology of, of this, where you see uh, one of these Legion that um, appearing in, in a, an event prior to their release in the in the toy scheduling. It doesn't really bother me. I do quite like the idea that, you know, over time the Cobra Legion is evolving and expanding and they're adding in all of these different new specialities, whereas they started with almost just, you know, goons in in masks and and maybe a blue outfit but uh yeah an observation tim to what do you think of that uh i would prefer an issue that takes place in the original 85 not have post 85 characters but this has already happened this happened in issue 144 which is from uh about 1993 Mm -hmm. this is the snake Um, eyes charlie mike um flashback right yeah, so it's a it's a it's a flashback to sort of pre-issue one, and there are I forget what kind of specialized vipers in it, but it's not basic Cobra soldiers, and I don't know if that was an art decision or a or a story decision, um, but uh, you know we've had this sort of you know also similarly part of why I think it's okay is that uh, The Simpsons does it. Right. You know, like every 10 years, every five years, there's some episode of The Simpsons, which will have some flashback to how uh, Homer and Marge met. And (laughs) the first time they did that, that episode was on in, I don't know, 93, 96. And so the flashback is to the 80s. And now if they do that flashback, 
you know, they're going to have cell phones and the internet in the flashback because mm-hmm. okay. it's going to be like 2010. So that's fine. Right. My I Spy is lots of sound effects. Uh, this issue has a ton of sound effects. Um, and it starts on page three with the landing gear failing. Oh, it starts on page two with uh, with uh, the flaps, right? I'm not sure if that's flink or funk. Probably a flink, which is this wonderful uh, age-old composite you get when you put a, a capital U. Uh, when you put a capital L next to a capital I, you might sometimes you get a U. But uh, flink, gurn. Uh, boom, uh, awooga, awooga. Uh, I love the sound effects, right? <laughs> the blam when uh, Major Blood shoots his prisoner in the head, which is upsetting. But, um, you know, sound effects have fallen out of favor in comics, which I think is stupid because they are a unique attribute in the language of comics and you should use all the tools in your toolkit. And they fell out of favor because some people decided that they made comics look like kiddie and juvenile and like serious comics like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns don't have them. But sound effects are a way to create audio in a in a medium that doesn't have them. And absolutely the sound of a missile launching whoosh should have a punctuation and uh and it should be a different one than a van full of nuns getting hit by a cop car that's flipped through the air right like why not use every tool in your toolkit this issue uh i haven't this is not a scientific comparison but this this issue has i think a lot more sound effects than recent issues i uh, i love the sound and, oh. and i love i go ahead sorry i love them all and uh good job to neil yotake for uh, all these great fonts yeah. No, I was just going to add to, I, I'm a big fan of the sound effects too. Every now and again, I think some of them were a little so big. The words were so big that it, it became the panel. Uh, there was that one uh, panel near the end where um, the stinger gets blown up. And I think the word covered up most of what was happening behind it. I think Major yeah, Blood flying that. through the explosion <laughs> gets covered by the letters, I think. I do mm, like the one mm. where the plane explodes and the vipers are running away though. That was one of my favorites. I do like when sound effects, uh, if they're too big, a solution is to make them transparent or partially transparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what uh, that, that's what happens with the the techno viper explosion. You can see, but, yeah, that one looks great right through the the letters. Right, but not what happens with uh, the stinger getting blown up on the second to last page. Um, I have an eye spy, which uh, I was going to ask Ron, but now I realize this. Pr- Maybe a question for Neil Yuatake, the letterer. Uh, this limousine that is driving this Barovian VIP, uh, the limousine license plate is 616-YC-1989. Uh, 616 in comics often refers to the, quote, regular Marvel Universe. Uh, and then there's two letters, and then there's four digits, which looks like the year 1989. Uh, but I wonder if... Uh, I'm guessing this is not in Larry Hama's plot. I'm guessing since it's in type, this is not in Ron's original art. Uh, I wonder if it has any meaning. Hmm. Uh, I also spy a a fancy tattoo on these three uh, villainous mercenaries that are pretending to be vipers that Major Blood has hired. And Baroness refers to to it. Um, And I can imagine in the plot, it, it sort of calls out for the artist for Ron, something like, you know, like we can see a tattoo on the viper's uh forearm and and maybe a picture of it or not but one of those things where it's like we can't be seeing him from behind we have to see him 
either from the front or from the side so that we can see his arm yeah, uh, and and he has to he has to not have his glove on right actually that must be the whole in the scene these three vipers four vipers i guess it's five are torturing this um are torturing this uh informant and they have their viper shirt jacket vests off which initially i thought oh it's because they're beating up this guy um and you maybe you take your shirt off if you're going to get uh sweat or blood on you but maybe actually the reason is so that there's already an excuse for a viper to have uh, his glove off so we can see his tattoo. Ron, do you, do you remember where this tattoo came from? Yes, that is, um, that is another uh, uh, military. That might have been a, uh, oh, what were they called? Uh, they were uh, not the Foreign Legion. They were, uh, oh, here we go. What is this? Larry actually sent me pictures of the tattoos. These are real things. Um, there were a few of them. They're um, ex-military or mercenary-style tattoos. Oh, yeah, you know what? One of the pictures Larry sent me was a soldier with two teardrops on his cheek and the word legion on over his eyebrow. So I think these guys were, mm-hmm. you know, assembled mercenaries from different military factions that got this particular tattoo or, you know, any one of any number of tattoos that he, uh, he sent me. Um, was there any little Easter eggs or, or, or sort of things in the detail of this one that you wanted to call out, Ron, that, that we've not talked about so far? I don't, I, you know, honestly, I don't think there are. I didn't really have any opportunities to stick any in there that I would have thought were clever enough or, oh, hey, look at that, because I do love to do things like that, put little <laughs> hidden things or characters or people in places. Um, I just don't think I had the, the room to do that in this issue. Um, okay. An older one in the IDW uh, in the Seven uh, Percent Solution, uh, Doctor Freud's office is littered. I mean, littered to the point where I thought I was going to get in trouble with all sorts of the Herculoids and Jason Voorhees masks and ROM stuff. Uh, I mean, if you if you go back now and look, at Baron Carza is in there, just statuettes and and things on his walls. But I didn't really get the chance to do that in this one. Well, you gotta, you know, you're you're drawing a you're drawing a non-licensed property miniseries, and you got to audition for the licensed property job that you want, right? So I want to draw Rom and Micronauts. Um, my, my other I Spy Mark is, I guess I have two. One is that uh, not only do we see a Cobra Stinger, we see it use all four of its missiles, mm-hmm. uh, and then lastly, uh, this issue has a lot of. Uh, foreign language it has a lot mm. of expressions in other languages yes. so these these uh, bloods mercenaries uh, they insult the baroness and they call her uh, toilet scum in French mm-hmm. and the Barovian uh, VIP uh, and his um, assistant or, or, or bodyguard uh, also in the limo with him uh, they use a couple Polish phrases mm-hmm. um, which is uh, you know it's a Barovian doesn't exist as a language, so let's borrow, you know, the country that either it sort of is or that it would be next to in the fictional G.I. Joe yeah. map of Europe. Which they also do for Darklonia as well, um, I think as a right, basis right. in Polish. Right, thank you. Um, yeah, I, it was one of one of my notes was that there is a lot of foreign language. You, you were often in comic books, you'll have the shorthand of, you know, those triangular brackets to denote that people are, are talking in a foreign language. Um, so, yeah, and we often don't have to, you know, try and figure out what the words are ourselves. But um, here, we're, there is a lot. We've got 
I'll do a run through of some of it. Some of the ones that you know particularly stuck out for me: Racleur de Bide means Bide scum. Uh, the English equivalent, perhaps, being douchebag. We had um, Légion étrangère, French Foreign Legion, uh, the military branch of the French army established in 1831. Um, and actually, in Blood's file card, it states that he had previously been in the French Foreign Legion. So, I guess a throwback to to how he knows these uh, these particular mercenaries. We had. Uh, Je, je suis trop venère. I am really angry. Venère is a, a Verlin word, meaning it's formed by inverting the syllables from another word. So venère is Verlin for enervre, meaning irritated, angry, or even pissed off. So uh, je suis trop pissed off. Uh, we had un boudin, a sausage made of fat, blood and meat that smells. Uh, so in uh, in slang, um, boudin is often used to mean an ugly girl, which um, I think most of us would say that Baroness is not. She should be put on a pedestal. <laughs> uh, so there we go. Lots and lots of uh, of foreign lingo going on. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. Error detected. Um, the main one I noticed was that we've got this continuation of issue 34. Um, and then uh, the conclusion is that uh, Blood says to Baroness, until we meet again at the rally in Springfield then. <laughs> uh, but issue 33 was the rally. Um, and then after this point, uh, Blood, Blood and Baroness were, uh, you know, worrying about this so so at this point uh yeah so before 33 uh blood and baroness were in cahoots planning uh about what the uh the the rally post uh post 33 they were uh you know worrying about the aftermath and this um you know inquest that eventually happens so um my no prize for this is that the publication dates for the issues around about issue 34 were delayed and all over the place with uh, fill-in fill issues and, and, and things. And actually, I've lo I looked online on, on Comic Art Fans and found a page from issue 34 where the issue number seems to be crossed out and then replaced with 34. So I don't believe that issue 34 was originally intended to take place after 33. I think they switched things around. So this is probably a continuation of that original intent of pu publication um, uh, order because um, yeah the the rally uh, uh, sequence that was in 33 picked up with a one-page insert in uh, issue 35 where blood and baroness bump into zartan but then actually isn't picked up again as an imp as a plot point until 38 so yeah lots of uh, i think lots of movement uh, of, of when publication uh, of when things were produced and when they were meant to come out which um, maybe is intentional or or maybe uh, is is Larry remembering when events you know were supposed to happen <laughs> in his original plan that's some good gi gi journalism some good archaeology <laughs> there mark gi journalism love it uh and thanks to all of the fans and collectors out there of original art who who share images of their pages and covers on sites like Comic Art Fans. Uh, my only, my only uh, 
error detected was that uh, that panel with the um, the tattoo on the Viper. Baroness doesn't have her Cobra symbol on Ooh. her on her breastplate, which she does two panels earlier. And uh, I'm going to uh, no prize this as <laughs> uh, a trick of the light because they're in a warehouse with uh, with fluorescent lights uh, in the ceiling. I'm going to tell. I'm going to own up to that one. That's me. I didn't put it on there. Jeez. And we've we talked a bit about this before about the artist's approach to the cobra symbol, and it looks like um, Ron, you've used used a couple of different approaches where some of them are hand drawn, particularly on the on the outfits. Whereas um, I can see, for example, on that um, that that tanker that the on page is it. Uh, one, two, three, four. On page four, um, where where the Techno Vipers have got their uh, water hoses connected to, that looks a little bit perfect. So I'm imagining that maybe that one is is digital. Uh, on a flat surface, like or even on the front of the Cobra APC, I'll use the. Uh, I have a a vector file here that I'll use and shrink uh-huh. it or enlarge it. Is that a vector? Is that a vector file that IDW gave you, or that you got from the internet, or that you made? Oh, the internet. And thank you to the internet, not just the art collectors who share their artwork, <laughs> but the the professional and wannabe graphic designers who will vectorize uh, popular logos and symbols. I actually feel a little bad. I, I robbed you of an, of an error that you would have spotted, but I picked it up in the script and, and fixed it. Um, Ooh. Um, as the story was progressing and I read through to the end of the script, the very last time uh, Major Blood fires a missile at... At the at the Baroness, <clears throat> uh, the description was something like, you know, blah blah blah. Major Blood has two missiles left, and I was reading through and I was looking at my other pages. I'm like, that doesn't seem to add up right. So Larry had him firing at her five times, but there's mm-hmm. only four missiles on the back of the stinger. So I just, I basically, I just, you know, when there would have been two, I just drew one because he'd only have one left. Excellent. And I robbed you of this error. I'm sorry. Oh, good, I'm spot. good spot. Good spot. I, I would I would uh, I would take the robbing of the finding of the error over finding the error <laughs> any day. Excellent. There used to be a pudding that was over egged. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town a comic book writer of of some renown he's using real world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples it's a larry hammer colloquialism he's talking gi joe and all its heroism can you guess what it is is it something new now listen as larry drops a slice of real life on you Okay, so over to Larry Hammer, colloquialisms. Um, the one that I spotted here was Don't Praise the Day Before Sunrise, um, which is uh, very similar to the Polish proverb um, Don't Praise the Day Before Sunset. So I guess don't praise, you know, don't don't say that something's uh, all, all great before it's begun. It would be sunrise on don't, don't, you know, don't go overboard before it's finished would be sunset. Um, and uh, yeah, the equivalent of don't count your chickens. But yeah, I like that. Don't praise the day before sunrise. 
Quote of the week, quote of the week. Quote of the week, quote of the week. Quote of the week, quote of the week. Quote of the week. Did you have a favorite line of dialogue? I, there wasn't anything I'd actually picked out for that one. Yeah, it's it's on the it's on the splash page. Uh, Wild Weasel. Those Technovipers risked everything to get us out of there, which which is you know I've, I've already talked about mm-hmm. how much I like this page as a as a as a breath as a break as a a line in the in the story uh, you know a dividing line in the story. Right. So so that, I think that's us done talking about issue two two eighty. Was there any sort of I guess concluding? thoughts ideas about the uh about the whole experience of putting it together ron that you'd like to reflect on i'm sorry i don't have a more interesting answer and and a more interesting answer to that (laughs) and and do you you think um do you think you'd like to see um more uh more gi joe work in in the future is it a world that you'd you'd like to return to I'd really love, I, and I, I may be in the minority on this, I like the weirder stuff in the G.I. Joe books. Like, I mm-hmm. loved all the Cobra Law stuff um, and Serpentor. I like the weird stuff more than the than the straightforward military stuff. Um, like I said, I'm probably in the minority in that, though. <laughs> uh, what I'd love to see from Ron for a return to G.I. Joe. Uh, so Ron did uh, full... Or loose pencils, but full inks on revolutionaries, which was some G.I. Joe characters. But, uh, you know, the adventure team and a slightly different version of, of Stalker uh, and uh, and Hawk and Sergeant Sa- Savage, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. So um, uh, and then with uh, the Cobra's Venom, um, some of that story was not inked by Ron. So what I'd like to see is the whether it's a single issue or multiple issues, I'd like to see with sort of full um, uh, deadline, without without any kind of creeping deadline or heart attack. <laughs> I can I'd like to see, I'd like to see Ron come back to the Larry Hama Real American Hero series for a story of of any length, uh, with enough time to draw it to Ron's sort of full and complete standards. Um, Pencils and inks. And maybe it can have some of the weirder stuff. So Serpentor's gone. Cobra Law is a definite no for the Larry Hama continuity. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there there are still some weird Joes and Cobras, and certainly um, something could be made up just for that story. Sure. I actually, uh, I was working on a Cobra's Venom, I put it out there to, in, into the universe. And by that, I mean an email to Tom Walsh that I fell in love. Mm-hmm. I love Quinn. And I wouldn't mind doing some Quinn stories. And I'll tell you what, I would love to do like a road pig. I love road pig. I think he's ridiculous, but I love his character. Well, um, I, I feel like you're setting up two untold tales right now. <laughs> or how about a Quinn untold tale? Uh, and the, the road pig story could happen right now. This need not be a flashback. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly could use some, uh, uh, you know, a meaty uh, dreadnought uh, adventure that, that takes place now. Excellent. Um, so I think that's us all done with uh, 280 now. So let's uh, talk toys. Mock talks about toys, ho ho. He talks about G.I. Joe. He talks about all the toys from the comic book and the animated show. Mock talks about toys. Mock talks about toys. And uh, yeah, Ron, we when we were talking earlier, we was just you know reflecting on some of your early encounters with uh with gi joe in your your youth so what were what were your what were your memories of uh, 
the G.I. Joe toys? Oh, uh, I had the original, uh, the, uh, the fuzzy-haired G.I. Joe with eagle-eye vision <laughs> kung fu grip dolls back in the day. And my brother and I had a, you know, we, we would have him fight like our Kiss dolls or our Shogun warriors and whatnot. So I had the old, old-school G.I. Joe. Sadly, I have no idea what those are. They're probably long gone. Um, do you know, have you ever seen one or held one, the ones with the little clicky uh, joints in the elbows and the knees? Yeah, yeah. 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 So we, we had those, um, and, you know, we were stupid kids, and, you know, he didn't think they were going to, we, we we got rid of them or lost them or they got broken or whatever. And then when the uh, action did, the smaller ones, the Hasbro figures came out. Um, Torpedo was my very first one. And uh, <laughs> if you want to hear a stupid story, I used to, we had a pool in our backyard, and I would use Torpedo <laughs> and my Wampa figure and my Hoff Ice playset in the pool, and I had this whole stupid Arctic superhero monster thing going on, and I'd, <laughs> I'd uh, you know, have little action scenes in the pool that doesn't sound stupid at all that sounds great <laughs> uh where did you buy your toys um mostly toys are us um but there was a pharmacy chain called genevieve's on long island that we had that they would sometimes have these random little spots where they had action figures and i would sometimes grab transformers there too but mostly toys are us uh, did you buy a lot of uh small Joe figures and vehicles, or were you sort of sampling the line? Um, you know, my my, uh, my brother had more Joes than I did, but we did, uh, we had a fairly decent collection of stuff. Um, well, it sounds like you pooled your collection. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. That's like one of my jokes. <laughs> yeah, there's those crickets again. Ron, what are you drawing... Right now, what project are you on? Uh, I just uh, I'm on the, I'm in the middle of drawing uh, that endangered book that um, Mark had mentioned earlier. How how far into it are you? When might you finish? I'm penciling and inking it. Uh, Garrett Burner is lettering it. It was written by a man named John McCarthy. What what's your schedule like? When will you finish it? How far are you? I'm having I'm, I'm, it's a much more looser schedule on that because there's a lot of design work that goes into it so I'll draw some pages and then we look at uh, future scenes and then we you know we talk about it map it out I work pretty close with the writer and the creator there's a lot of sci-fi tech stuff so I we bounce ideas back and forth I'm about halfway done with issue one and I think he's going to be taking that to Kickstarter so it'll be a mini series not a not a oh, right uh, I believe it's a three issue it's like a sci-fi horror dystopian future type of story with some monsters and whatnot. How did you find the writer or vice versa? Uh, he found me. I think he just uh, emailed me on Twitter one day or Facebook. I get a lot of like, random emails on social media. And then I, you know, I look into them or I look into the person that's contacting me. I'm like, all right, we can, uh, we can do something here. He had, uh, he had a pretty uh, solid idea of what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. So we started talking and, uh, and then I landed that gig. Cool. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think that's us all done. Uh, I think I can hear I think <laughs> I can hear stirrings in the background that, that indicate that I'll probably be shouted at for taking too long from from you know her indoors. We're all indoors, but um, <laughs> not not to not to worry. So so yeah, it just leaves us to uh, to just uh, thank you very much for you know taking the the time for uh, working through your audio <laughs> issues so that, so that we could uh, get to talk to you. Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, yeah, and best of wishes uh, for, for your uh, future project. And uh, hopefully yeah, we'll see you back on uh, Joe before too long. 
So is people can find you in various places. I think Ron at Ron Joseph 717 on Twitter is one of those places. Um, want to call out any others? Uh, I've actually got another uh, Ron Joseph 717 on Instagram, but I'm not on that as much. Twitter and Facebook are probably the best ones. And I'm listed as Ron Joseph on Facebook. So Tim, where can people find you? Instagram, a real American book, Facebook, a real American book, and a real American book.com. Ah, I understand that there's an index on the website where people can find lots of articles that stretch back many years. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. <laughs> Good stuff. Excellent. So um, next time on Talking Joe, uh, we'll be talking Disavowed and the Devil's Due issue 16 from 2003. And then back here on the regular ARA update, we will be talking issue 281. It should be out, I think, next week when this uh, episode drops. It's called Murder by Assassination and is a brand new arc uh, picking up the events after Snake Hunt with our new artist Andrew Griffiths. Uh, so look forward to, to seeing that. You can find us in all of the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has all of those places to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our contact details, as well as uh, the Patreon, which can be found at patreon.com slash talkingjoe. So thanks to all of our backers, Jay, Sam, Richard. Um, so... When all is said and done, you can catch us down the road. Because we've been talking Joe. And we're all out of Joes. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, thanks, Ron. This was great. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.